We're going to look at verses 31 to 59. I know that uh, Pastor Steve did a wonderful job uh, teaching through this text just last week on um, very necessary, necessary facts. We're going to take this very long passage of Scripture and, and discuss another matter that the Lord Jesus Christ seeks to highlight here, okay? Uh, and we'll talk about that as we go along here. I do not believe we're going to be able to finish this whole text today. The next time we're together in John's gospel, God willing, we will. I believe we'll be able to get through the first of three points and finish the second and third that we'll announce to you in just a a bit at a later week. Do you remember the game show? As a matter of fact, recently there was a there was a game show that was kind of like a remake of an old game show called To Tell the Truth. Do you remember that? There would be three celebrity contestants and they would be asked to choose among three people who the real, for instance, John Smith was. So these three celebrities would have three men seated before them and they would get the opportunity to to ask these men questions about John Smith. And then from their answers, they would have to determine whether they were lying or not. Well, there were some contestants, some John Smiths that were actually quite convincing. Do you remember watching that show and you yourself picking out the wrong John Smith? And you were amazed how good of a liar that guy could be? And often the contestants, the celebrities got it wrong as well. Well, as Jesus continues to teach from the temple during the Feast of Tabernacle, he interacts with religious unbelief. We saw last week that some proclaimed faith in Jesus. Pastor Steve mentioned that, verse 30, 31. It's very clear there. Whenever we see someone placing faith in the Lord Jesus, for those of us who know him, it grants us cause for pause. Tomorrow, you're going to get another new birth announcement of someone that's professed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we get that new birth announcement through email, That cause for pause is usually twofold. Praise God, someone's been born again. That's a miracle of heaven. And the second cause for pause would be, Lord, I pray that their life would bear forth fruits of repentance. Because often we know as Christians that there are some who profess faith in Jesus Christ, and there's others who, mere, who also confess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus, in our text this morning, is going to compel us to discern between the two. Okay? Discern between the two. We've seen this already in John's Gospel. Earlier, some proclaimed their faith and belief that Jesus was the king. He was the Messiah of the Old Testament. 
And they professed faith in him as king. As a matter of fact, the text we saw before, they actually forcibly tried to make him king, crown him king over all the earth, especially over Rome, the Roman Empire at that time. But that was a profession. They did not confess him as savior and as Lord. Both in that situation earlier in the gospel and today's text, there certainly is faith proclaimed, but we just can't be convinced it's saving faith. For some, Jesus can merely be a noble fad, one whose teaching stimulates the mind and whose miracles stir the emotions. And yet these signs were performed that people would believe that Jesus Christ is the actual Son of God and that believing they might have life through his name, not just professing, but confessing him as Lord. Having done what we celebrated this morning, having believed that his death on the cross was sufficient for all of their sin, therefore turning from their sin that he came to save them from and surrendering the will their own will to Jesus Christ as Lord. That's confession, that's being born again, that's conversion. Well, there's been much discussion about the professions of faith made in our text this morning that you read last week in verses 30 and 31. There are some who believe that verses 30 and 31, uh, that these people that profess faith were true believers. And that the other terms used by John in the text all the way to verses 59 describe unbelief in the chapter and it stood in contrast to these newfound believers in the faith in verses 30 and 31. Some believe, on the other hand, the faith was real but still struggled to embrace the rite of circumcision according to the Mosaic law. And that just kept them from a personal walk with God. Of course, we know what Paul had to say about that in Galatians 1, 6-9, this would have been a false gospel because Jesus and his finished work on the cross is enough to save. We don't need to add religious works to it to complete that salvation. And yet still more have done much to divide the passage into several different sections to prove that some believed but actually most didn't we don't have time for all that but suffice it to say that john still uses the words of verse 34 to describe jewish unbelief under the voice of jesus's teaching at the feast of tabernacles as slaves to sin still in verse 37 many were indifferent to Jesus's words they could not hear or accept his teaching John declares the religious unbelief as children of the devil verse 44 that's pretty strong terminology in verse 55 he calls them liars and guilty of scheming to arrest and murder him and be killers Verse 59. When fully analyzing the passage, we're left asking for someone to tell the truth about who was saved and who wasn't. Will the one with genuine saving faith please stand up? 
since it seems no one gets it yet. And those who believe in the passage believe intellectually that Jesus is the Son of God, but they have not surrendered their hearts to him yet. Jesus speaks again to define and describe for us what genuine saving faith is. And he does so along three lines for the remainder of John chapter 8. So let's let Jesus tell us who a true follower is and how they live. He's going to give us three tests of true discipleship. Three tests of true discipleship. They're not going to be hard to understand. As a matter of fact, a couple of them are going to be a little bit repetitive from what we've seen in previous texts in John's gospel. If you're truly born again, they will be easily understood. So I just give you this challenge as we go through this the next couple times we're together uh, here and, and then again after Mother's Day. If these truths are hard for you to understand, then Jesus would have you be a bit more introspective in your own heart as to why they're hard for you to understand and why they're hard for you to live. Okay? Again, the text says that there were people who believed. But the rest of the text, Jesus is clarifying. He's saying, you profess belief, but you're unable to live what you're saying. Okay? So, the first test, the test of fatherhood. The test of fatherhood. There's been at least three times in my pastoral experience where I've had the opportunity to counsel a girl who was a pregnant, unwed lady. And she didn't know who the dad was. Those are uncomfortable times. Uh, almost impossible to counsel as a pastor. Um, the first thing you do is introduce them to the love of Jesus, right? Because uh, much more important than finding out who the real father was. You want them to know the Lord Jesus. So that's the easy part. The hard part is, how do we get a few men to take a paternity test? To find out who the real father is. The theme of fatherhood absolutely dominates this text from verses 30 all the way to verses 59. We're going to highlight some of those places this morning. For the Jewish leader, of course, their father is, according to the text that you read last week, Abraham. In verse 33, we see that, don't we? They proclaim we are Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anybody. Jesus even confirms that in verses 36. In verse 36, you see that there? So if the Son of God makes you free, you will be free indeed. I know, verse 37, that you are Abraham's descendants. Well, in verse 39, the religious leaders say again, they answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. I don't think there's any debating that from a political standpoint, if you will. As Abraham may be father of the Jewish nation, the Jewish people. 
Then what does Jesus go on to say in verse 39? If you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of him. Do the deeds of Abraham. And then clear down in verse 53. Surely you are not greater than our father Abraham, the Jews declare to Jesus, who died, the prophets died too, whom do you make yourself out to be, Jesus? Of course, as Jesus questions the religious one's paternity, they also question his. Jesus, as he's done multiple times in John's gospel, proclaims that he's from above and does the will of his father. He does the same thing here in verse 38, 40, and 42. I speak, he says in verse 38, the things which I have seen with my father. That's pretty fascinating, that word seen. Therefore, you also do the things which you heard from yours. Verse 40, Jesus says, but as it is you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth which I actually heard from God, which I actually heard from God. And then again in verse 42, Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. And then he says some profound theological things here. I proceed forth and have come from God, for I have not even come of my own initiative, but he sent me. This is eternal generation Jesus is speaking of. This is incarnation. This is his birth. And this is mission, all in one defense of his own paternity, his own father. I am one with the father. That's what he said in John 1 and in the I am statements of this gospel, right? He's the logos of God. He's the one that is the eternal word of God. He has no beginning and no ending, just like his father. I proceed from him. I was born as the God-man. I lived for a mission. Eternal generation, incarnation, mission. I was born to come and die for the sins of mankind. Yours and mine too. What does he say in verse 54? It is my father who glorifies me. John 17 that we'll study in a few months. He says, Lord, now in Christ's high priestly prayer before they put him on the cross, he says, Lord, glorify me now with the glory that we have enjoyed in eternity past so that I can come again and enjoy that same glory with you. In verse number 55, so important. What does Jesus say of his knowledge of his father? And you have not come to know him, he says to the Jews, but I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I will be a liar just like you. But I know him and I keep his word. Two distinct uses of the word K-N-O-W there, no. 
he's saying here by the grammar, both intuitively and by personal experience, by his very nature, he knows God as the son of God. And he has enjoyed by personal experience this relationship with his father for all of eternity. And then in verse 58, here's the final statement of what he understands to be true about his father. And at this statement, they get so charged, they run to a local construction site and pick up rocks to stone Jesus. He says of their father, before your father Abraham was, what? I am. They knew. That was the straw that broke the camel's back. And verse 59, therefore they picked up stones to throw at him. But while they were running over to the construction site and turned their backs on Jesus, Jesus slipped into the crowd and disappeared because he knew it wasn't his time yet. I suppose one might think that the paternity debate would be over at this particular time. But John's just getting started. It truly does dominate the passage. It's very important first true test of discipleship, you see, because it's going to give birth to the final two tests, if we understand it. Again, remember, this is a matter of true saving faith. When someone professes Christ or whether they just merely confess Christ, do they have the right spiritual DNA? So religious unbelief dies back into the claims they know of Jesus' father. Their claims are quite shocking and for us, very sobering. They're that kind of condemning claims that would silence any room full of any sized group of people. Verse 53, you are not greater than our father Abraham who died. Are you saying that you knew him? You've been alive less than 50 years, Rabbi Jesus. That's about as tame as they are. Verse 41, Jesus says, you are doing the deeds of your father. They say to him, we were not born of fornication. Wink, wink. That's exactly what they're saying here. We know your mother Mary got pregnant before her wedding ceremony, Rabbi Jesus. That's what they're saying. At least we know who our biological dad is, Jesus. You don't even know yours. And in Hebrews 12 language, they were calling him a bastard instead of a son. He was an illegitimate child. Jesus, you were actually conceived in sin. We know if you don't know your father that at least your father Joseph had committed immorality with his wife-to-be and was immoral before they exchanged their vows and we all have our calendars and we all been tracking we all know that it takes nine months right. 
That's pretty scary. I could imagine how that would hurt the heart of Jesus. Yet they go beyond the personal attack and dive even deeper culturally and spiritually. Go with me to verse 48. The Jews answered and said to him, do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and that you're demon-possessed? Jesus, aren't you a half-breed leaving you culturally unclean? Leaving you ceremonially unclean? You're not even a true Jew. At least that potential exists if you really don't even know who your father is. Is it Joseph? We don't know. Maybe Mary should have got a paternity test to determine whether it was Joseph or whoever it was. They don't leave it there. They've actually decided that he's been overtaken by one of Satan's minions. He's demon-possessed. It's like they're saying, well, let's just wrap this whole argument up quickly and be done with it. The religious leaders' arguments weren't logical, but they were gradual. They weren't stated clearly and compellingly like a skilled debater. They just went to their final arguments and made the only two claims that could be terminal in nature for all those who had been listening to Jesus. And Jesus stands before them in their estimation as unclean biologically and unclean spiritually. He's a half-breed from an unclean people. And his words are dictated to him, narrated to him by Satan himself. And in the process of the conversation, the Jews wise up themselves after they've put Jesus in a corner they believe he would stay in and they would kill him in. And they piously state something quite profound in verse 41. They go vertical on Jesus. You know what? Yeah, Abraham's our father, but really God is our father. This is another way of getting like religious one-upsmanship on Jesus. They claim what they know to be true that Moses wrote in Exodus chapter 4 and verse 22, where God says, Israel is my firstborn son. Jeremiah 31, 9, Deuteronomy 14, 1 and 2, the Lord says, I am Israel's father. There it is, Jesus. You can't even claim that. You are a self-professing Jew and therefore, they were, they were undercutting his, his authority of teaching even as a rabbi. So this is the religious Jews' proud claim and ultimate defiance and defense of their paternity test before Jesus. The Lord Jesus is the final speaker of debate. With authority from on high, he speaks and claims truth. Verse 37. Jesus graciously admits that they are descendants of Abraham. And what does he say in verse 37? Yet you seek to kill me. Kind of let that bake for a sec. Descendants of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me. He goes on to say in verse 40, you are seeking to kill me. A man who has told you the truth 
which I heard from God, this Abraham did not do. If you're a father of Abraham and you claim God is your father, Abraham would not be seeking to kill me. As a matter of fact, he says, Abraham never wanted to kill me. Look at verse 56. He says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it. And he was what? He was glad. He was glad. This word rejoice is used in some really unique special texts throughout the Gospels and the New Testament. This is, this is the, the ecstasy of the word rejoice at the highest level. It's used in Luke 147 where Mary, in what we know to be the Magnificat, praises God, where it says Mary rejoiced when told she would bear the Christ child. It's used in Acts chapter 2 and verse 26 where Peter quotes David in his Pentecost sermon as David sees forward to the day of a resurrected Christ Jesus. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. It exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope, David said. The word rejoice is used again in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9, two different times. Great text for you to read in that uh, anthem, really, of gospel truth that Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 1. It's used in Revelation 19, 6, where John writes of the scene, scene of the marriage supper of the Lamb, where the same author of the Gospel of John says, let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. This is true of the heart of Abraham, you see. Jesus proclaims it to the unbelieving Jews. In so doing, Jesus compels the Jews to remember the Mosaic story of Abraham offering Isaac, his son, upon the altar. Do you remember that story? He would do so in faith, knowing that the Lord would raise Isaac from the dead. And God mercifully supplies a sacrifice, the ram, in Isaac's place. The Jews knew Abraham. Their father had rejoiced at what that provision from God meant to Abraham. They knew Abraham's faith before the Isaac event. They knew what Moses wrote when he said, And Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. And so they knew Abraham, and they knew that he had rejoiced to see the day of Jesus' arrival. And the Bible actually says he did see it. He saw it by faith, and he claimed it. Reminds me of Anna in the temple as <laughs> she served there into her 80s. And when Jesus has arrived, do you remember that story? In the temple, she received him, held him, and she rejoiced. This, this God, now enfleshed, the Messiah's come. Sweet Jesus. By faith. They believed forward as by faith we believe back. 
Abraham, therefore, would have never sought to kill Jesus. By faith, he placed his hope of eternal life in him. And of course, we all know what the great faith chapter in Hebrews 11 says of Abraham. So like a skilled debater, Jesus inductively continues to build his paternity argument against the religious one. And he continues his deeper dive by saying in general terms in verse 38, therefore you also do the things which you heard from your father. And you would think at first reading that he was talking about Abraham. Now we know he's not. So Jesus takes his spade and goes a little bit deeper into the dig of the religious leaders' hearts. If they were really Abraham's spiritual descendants, they would act like Abraham and rejoice in Jesus and not kill him. And then he says in verse 41, you're actually doing the will of your father. And after a bit more thorough interchange, Jesus lays it on the line in verse 44. And he says, you are of your father. And here's your paternity test, the devil. Boom, mic drop. Really? And you want to do the desires. That's the Greek word, epithumia. You want to do the lusts. Folks, hang on. In the next couple of weeks, when we get back to this text after Mother's Day, this is going to be so profound to understand points two and three. Kind of make, make a note, try to remember. Sometimes I don't remember what I preached three weeks ago. I'm asking you to, re to remember this in the future. I get that. But this is, this is crazy. You want to do the lusts of your father, and Jesus goes back to Moses' writings at the creation week with his closing paternity arguments. He says here three things about the devil. The devil is a murderer from the beginning. He tempted Adam to sin and therefore brought death upon the whole human race. Remember Romans 5? For as by one man sin entered the world, and so there's death by sin. The devil's a deceiver, and he's a murderer from human being one. And he's caused death upon the whole human race because of sin, his sin. And he goes on to say here about the devil, their father, and he does not stand in truth. The devil is the antithesis of truth. He's the distortion of truth. Remember back to the Garden of Eden? He's talking to Eve. Hath God like really said that? And Jesus clarifies even more. There is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. That's his native tongue. That's Satan's native language. Everything he says is a lie. Even if he speaks truth, it's to distort the truth into a lie. Do you understand that? He's the father of all lies. Therefore, he's the father of these Faithful, religious, God-fearing Jews. At this point, I suppose the Jewish leaders could step back and say, hey, okay, I get it, okay. It's getting a little hot in the room. I'm going to back off a little bit. And what do most of our friends say that are religious but not converted? 
At least we serve the same one. Good. I, they could do this. Maybe some of them did. You serve God, we serve God, let's call it a wash, and let's just go enjoy the rest of the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus isn't done yet. Because the profession that we believe and serve the same God still leaves a soul short of what it means to confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Now, so in these statements, Jesus is confronting their abuse of the Mosaic moral code. Do you understand that? The abuse of the Mosaic moral code. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not bear false, what? Witness. You see, friends, not, not one person in this room can be born again unless you are gutturally convicted of your sin. Being born again is not merely placing your faith in Jesus and in so doing get a get out of jail free ticket being born again is coming face to face with Jesus who tells you what you are but then also shares with you why he came for you Jesus goes on to say in verse 46, which one of you convicts me of sin? The word convict here means to charge and then prove the charge. Of course, the Jews stand silent. They have nothing to accuse him of except in their minds blasphemy for Jesus claiming his own deity, which they could not prove or disprove because of their own sin. So the conclusion, Jesus' father is eternal, and so is he. He's true. And he has narrated himself and sought to glorify himself in the person of Jesus Christ. The Father is one with whom the Son has enjoyed an eternal, unsullied fellowship. Jesus has known him from eternity past. His origin is from him. His mission is granted from the Father. And Jesus was glad and humbled himself to do the will of his father which was to bring light and life to men but the Jews they still wanted to kill Jesus they would lie their way to doing so because they had the DNA of their father the devil I suppose the paternity debate is over the DNA results are in so discipleship test number one, whose will are you doing and why? The will of the Father is unto eternal purpose and the will of the wicked one is unto death. Whose will are you living? Whose will are you obeying? And so will the contestant whose father is really 
Jesus' Father. Please stand up. So stand as we close. I would encourage you not to stand if he's not your father in Christ. Okay. If he is your father, discipleship test number one, because you've surrendered your heart and life to the Lord Jesus Christ, then the next two things are going to be true of your life. You will no longer live a life of sin, and you will live a life saturated by God's word, the Bible. Three simple things, like I told you at the beginning, not hard to understand, but only demonstrated. True spiritual paternity is only demonstrated in the way we live and what we enjoy. Okay? And we'll dive into those two things next time we're together. Father in heaven, we love you. We thank you for the honor of looking into this quite sobering text and this interchange between Jesus and those who professed him but did not confess him. I pray, Lord, that our hearts would, each of us individually would hear this truth, know this truth, discern this teaching and apply it to our lives and I'm assuming, Lord, I'm speaking to pretty much everybody that really would proclaim God as their Father only through Jesus Christ. I'm assuming, Lord, that everyone here as a result would long to leave a life of sin and would love the Scriptures, the Bible, and center their lives around it. Lord, I know even folks of true saving faith struggle and I pray Lord that as we identify again and re-clarify again whose will we've been born of in Christ spiritually that we would understand that though we've struggled recently that as true children we will again confess and forsake and live that righteous, word-saturated life. Go from this place, let us go forth with renewed hope and with rejoicing in our hearts that we're your children.